0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, OffGridChristianity.co.uk, and you can contact us through that medium. So please enjoy our guest today who is married to Meg and they have five children. He's a Baptist Church minister in Christchurch, Dorset, which is on the edge of the New Forest and also by the sea. Our guest likes visiting coffee shops and running. He is passionate about seeing people come to faith, grow in their faith as well. He has just released a book available on Kindle and Amazon entitled Turning the Table on Restaurant Ecclesiology. Why did he write this book? What is his definition of ecclesiology? What does he mean by having a relationship with God and not a religious one? All these questions. It gives me great pleasure to find the answers from today's guest, Chris Brockway. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Where are you, sir?
1: Hey, Martin. Uh, it's a privilege to join you. I'm in sunny Christchurch on the south coast and currently sat in my church office.
0: With a cup of coffee, hopefully, and everything else, and all the people running around after you, looking after you. Yeah, you got it. You know how. It works. <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation today. But before we do that, five very important questions. As you know, question number one: If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be?
1: Oh, uh, wait! Well, I thought this was a brilliant question. I had a real toss-up between two individuals. Actually, go for it. One slightly more controversial than the other. One was Margaret Thatcher. Uh, which I can already sense is probably going to get some groans from people listening. So we're not going to go there. But anyway, I would love to have a chat with her about lots of things. I I think the other I'd go for is Nelson Mandela, actually, anti-apartheid revolutionary, uh, former president of South Africa. I would just love to chat with him about his life journey, his life experience, his political experience, and to hear how his faith inspired the journey that he took to lead the nation.
0: Yes, very good. Trouble is, Nelson's been asked quite a few times. She's getting a bit tiring now going to everybody else's house to talk to. Maybe
1: I'll go back to Margaret then, shall
0: I? <laughs> she hasn't been invited yet. <laughs> I wonder why not. That's shocking. But it would be nice to know about Margaret and her faith, because she did proclaim to be a Christian, didn't she?
1: She did, and I'd love to have a chat with her. Because I'm a I'm a child of the like late 70s, so like early 1980s. I was very aware of becoming aware of politics and she was one of those names that was bounded around for good and for bad so yeah i'd love to have a chat with her about her experience
0: i saw a video once <laughs> let's be more specific i think it's on youtube it who's a chap who's uh the rage at the moment charlie somebody he does all the paintings charlie mackesee is it oh yeah, yeah 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 and he talks about how he goes cow singing he can't stand singing i don't think but anyway a couple of them decide to go singing and i think they were going in sloan square in central london and they knock on a door and eventually this person comes to the door and it's Margaret Thatcher. And she wanted them to carol sing with them. Now there's, <laughs> now there's something. There you go.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not unlikely to happen at my door, I suspect.
0: <laughs> on account how she's slightly dead now, but
1: yes. Well, that too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be nice to know what she thought of her Christian faith and how important it was to her, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. If not, if she can't come, then you can have Nelson Mandela. Thank you. If he's not too tired. Question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, sir?
1: Oh, I'd love to choose from. Uh, I think my favourite story is the story of the prodigal son. Love that story. For reasons I'll probably go into in a bit, but we've adopted as parents, two of our children. I guess the story of the prodigal son, I just love that sense of A father just embracing a child. There's something really rich in that for me. Mm. Tells the story of God's incredible grace. I, I love the bit, as the story is told, that the father runs towards the son. He doesn't wait for the son to come. So, yeah, I don't know. It just stirs my emotions somewhat seeing a father respond to a son in that kind of a way. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you're not going to believe this, but the person who I interviewed last week chose Nelson Mandela. He also then chose his favourite parable to be the prodigal son.
1: Oh, this is getting a bit awkward. Shall I try and mix it up a bit? What's, what's, what's their answer <laughs> to the third question? I'll try not to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's
0: find out then. Question three. If you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, please?
1: Yeah, OK. So so this is related to what I just said, I guess. So, so we adopted our youngest two children. And... I'm not sure this is really about a law change, but maybe it's about increasing funding. I would just love to see greater investment, greater protection, I guess, for children who are living within the care system, maybe greater provision for fostering, greater provision for adoption, that more kids' lives would be changed and turned around as a consequence of, of that investment or that law change.
0: No, you didn't choose that. I bet,
1: I bet your previous guest didn't say that. No, OK, that's good. No,
0: but it wasn't far off, <laughs> Seriously. <It's> just, <laughs> this is getting interesting. Question four. Outside of family events, and I don't think you would choose the same answer as our previous guest, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please?
1: Yeah, well I thought this was quite an intriguing question because I realised that actually my my life must be quite dull because I couldn't actually really think of an enjoyable <laughs> day out. But I I'm I'm sure if I had lots of them and And I guess not think of an enjoyable day out without my children being around. So that kind of falls into the family events thing. So the memory that came to mind, I don't know why, so I thought I'd share it. I I did a placement way back when I was at Bible College with London City Mission. We were in London, Camden Town kind of area. I was invited to go and speak at a a weekly chapel service that they did in a very high security North London prison. And and I'd come up with this really clever Bible passage and illustration. So I I was looking at the story of Zachariah. And trying to tell the story of Zachariah that actually his encounter with Jesus was better than David Beckham's first ever goal, uh, which was the goal that made him famous and the goal that sent him into his proper professional career. I I spoke a bit about this goal and lining up for the goal, scoring the goal. And then all of a sudden I was aware that my audience, who were North London prisoners, were starting to boo me. (laughs) And it was all getting a little bit hostile, and then I worked out why. I was talking about David Beckham, who at the time was playing for Manchester United in a North London prison. So I very quickly changed my illustration to one of the Arsenal players. I can't <laughs> even remember who it was. So it wasn't better than Beckham, Beckham's goal. It was better than Wenger's goal, or whoever the Arsenal players were at the time.
0: Oh, it must have been Ian. <laughs> right, right, right. It must have been him.
1: Yeah, it might have been him might well yeah. have been him oh, yeah. it was a memorable
0: day out <laughs> <laughs> no offense to david if he's listening but i would rather you talk about Ian. right 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 yeah quite good answer thank you very much indeed and finally question five what has been your most embarrassing moment to date please chris
1: uh well as a church leader i've had many <laughs> the risk of standing at the front of a church week in week out saying things but actually it's not so much a church memory my Embarrassing memory actually goes back to my student days. I I worked for a large UK retailer. Rather heroically, one Christmas, went over to another store to help them out. It was a brand new store that had just opened. And I was kind of checkout manager uh, at the time. And I was at the front of this store, everyone thinking, wow, this guy's great. He really knows what he's doing. You know, racing around, really busy, trying to get the customers through the door as quickly as I can. And I just remember running from one end of the store to the other, looking heroic. And I slipped up. (laughs) Slid across the floor with an almighty bang, and the whole store seemed to go quiet and went. (gasps) And I just remember standing up feeling utterly embarrassed. So I'm all right, I'm all right. When actually, it had really quite hurt and then probably went and hid in a corner
0: somewhere. It is embarrassing, isn't it? When things like that happen, you can't quite dig yourself out, really, can you? On that one, but thank you very much. Well, that five good answers, of which three we've heard off before from a previous (laughs) guest, which is the first, I think. But that's very good. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to talking about your new book. And if I can say that word correctly, ecclesiology. Kind of say it. <laughs> go on, try again. I want to say ecclesology. I think that be far better. Ecclesiology, that's the word. Uh, and in your book Turning the Tables on Restaurant Ecclesiology. For those that are saying, Yeah, that word is a mouthful, what to you does it mean?
1: Yeah, so Ecclesiology is all about the way that churches are organized and structured, I guess. So it's a it's a very long, pretentious word, basically, to say that. It's the study or the understanding of how we organize and structure churches.
0: Mm, yeah, because I had to Google it as well, because I wanted a nice, succinct Janet and John version of it. And the nearest I got to what you're saying, really, is the study of what the Bible teaches on the church.
1: Yeah, that works. That works. Yeah. I, I guess it's about application in terms of how I'm using it. So it's about saying what are the principles around which we organize church, many of which, most of which, you would hope would be biblical principles. So yeah, that works. Google yeah. got it right.
0: Well done, Dr. Google. But the thing is, in light of your book, and no doubt we're going to be talking a lot more about it in the meantime, but you've already mentioned a couple of times your two adopted children. Yeah. And watching one of your sermons in another church. What flagged up for me was just how, as Christians, we feel we have to justify everything beforehand. It's like I was telling you about Sky Sports News off-air, and I suddenly felt as if I was justifying you as to why I watch it, because I said, well, I don't actually pay for Sky Sports, <laughs> you know, it's the freebie channel part of it. You know, when you're in ministry or whatever, you feel as if you have to justify it. Why is that?
1: Yeah, do you know, it's a, it's a really good question. <laughs> oh, I could tell you some stories around this. In, in part, it goes back to the reality that uh, when the girls first came to live with us they're very close in age so they look like at the time they could be twins now they're, they're not twins they're about 10 months apart from right. one another <laughs> which I I would be in a park and the girls would be, you know, swinging on the swings. And inevitably, other mums often would come up to me and say, oh, they're twins. How lovely. And I would say, oh, no, they're not twins. They're about 10 months apart. And you would get this look of absolute disdain from some of the parents thinking, could you not have waited (laughs) a bit longer? At which point, and again, I don't know why I did it. I would justify myself. Oh, no, no, no. You know, they're not our biological Children to try and get me off the hook for creating these two children ten months apart. But yeah, I I suppose sometimes you know you make reference to speaking in churches and and explaining this. I I guess it just gives some context actually for who I am and what I'm passionate about in some ways. Uh, And when you tell people you've got five children, often it creates the same response: "Wow, (laughs) no one ever talked to you about some of the facts of life." Yeah. So yeah, I'm responsible for three of my children biologically, but not the other two.
0: Got you. So justifying then, should we have to justify anything as Christians? Uh, no, I, I I,
1: don't think we should. It's it's kind of human nature, I think, sometimes, mm. isn't it, to qualify the things that we're saying. Yeah, I, no, I don't think we should. Maybe you've got a different view. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, how long have you got? Oh, wait a minute, it's not me being <laughs> interviewed. Looking back at these two children... Just as a matter of interest, why did you adopt two children when you already had three?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I I mean, with hindsight, this might not be the same answer, but, you know, back at the time, I think we felt we had some spare capacity. We already had three really healthy, fantastic children, biological children of our own. They were of an age and a stage where we felt we could probably offer something to some other children who hadn't necessarily had the privileged kind of start that these uh, three kids had had. Being Baptist minister, we we live in a house which is a fairly large house mm. connected to the church. We we had a couple of spare rooms, so we thought we might as well uh, fill them. A couple of spaces still in the car. Also, my wife and I have both got quite a history of adoption in our families as well. So my own mum, for example, is adopted. My wife has got multiple cousins who have all been adopted, and I think there was just something in our kind of value system that just inspired us and you know i think we felt led by god to say you know let's do this and it's been quite a, a journey ever since sometimes yeah, quite yeah, a roller coaster yeah.
0: how old were they when they were adopted
1: they were both under the age of two one was nearly two and the other was nearly one Wow! but we we fostered for a season first so we we fostered for two years yeah with a view to adopting and then eventually the adoption was completed after a couple of years it
0: doesn't have interest Did you ever have that conversation whereby should we actually tell the children they're adopted?
1: Yeah, I mean, nowadays, I mean, unlike, you know, for example, when my mum was growing up, there was something of a taboo about even talking about adoption. And and you would try and hide the fact from your child that they were adopted. I I think what psychologists and sociologists and others have worked out is that actually it's not a very helpful thing to do. You end up hiding from a child a really important part of their, their story which if you can't tell them is always going to leave a gap, particularly as they get into more adult years and they look back on their childhood and think, well, hang on a minute. Didn't I have a right to know? So it's very common nowadays. I guess there are some exceptions if a child is particularly at risk, for example, but you do talk to your children about in an age and st- age and stage appropriate way, their backstory. And, and we do that with ours and we're very open. And they're actually proud of the fact that they've been adopted into a new family, I think sometimes they wish it wasn't ours, but <laughs> <laughs>
0: they're very proud of it. Yeah, it could just imagine saying, "Well, my real mum would never tell me to tidy up my bedroom."
1: Yeah, and I and I guess you know, for all adopted children, uh, I, I think that's the reality. Any child living in care, I think sometimes they can have a romanticised view of what life might have been like if they hadn't been fostered or hadn't been adopted. Yeah, but of course, children find themselves in that place of fostering and adoption for good reason is that life was not how they might have imagined, which is their reason for for being placed for adoption or fostering in the first place.
0: For those that are listening today and thinking, well, do you know what, I'd like to adopt. What are the negative reasons for not adopting?
1: Yeah, I mean, the pluses are pretty obvious, aren't they? I, I, I think there can be huge rewards. But I, I guess on the negative side, there can be huge costs. We with our own children are all too aware of that you know they come with a backstory some of which is quite traumatic and quite difficult and even though you know our own children came to us at a very young age there was still some underlying residual stuff that was left from those early years and I guess that's true of many children who come through the care system uh, who are fostered who are adopted They they often wrestle with quite difficult things from their early childhood even from being in the womb or those kind of formative years of the first and second year of life, if that's not been done in a loving, loving, nurturing context, then it can leave the children with some significant challenges. It can be tough, can be really tough because, you know, for us as parents, it's very difficult to make sense sometimes out of some of the things that they're wrestling with because they're not rational things and you can try and rationalize them as much as you like and you don't always find the answers. Yeah.
0: I don't like the word biological. I don't know what else you can say, really.
1: Well, birth children, maybe, is the, the way to say it. Yeah, I mean, from our own children's perspective, I think there have been moments when they think it's the best thing we've ever done. All right. You might want to do a separate interview with them, but they would probably tell you, you know, there are times when they have felt the cost, which I guess we've all felt as a family, the cost of making that decision to yeah. change the the nature and the structure of our family. You know, our youngest son, for example, suddenly wasn't the youngest child anymore. He suddenly became the middle child. I can only imagine that's been quite a challenge at times for him. And there has been cost to that. In what way? Well, I, I guess inevitably, especially if you have some children who are who have increased need or additional needs, they there's a risk they get more of your attention or there's a perception that they're getting more of your attention. And I, I can imagine for our middle child, that could be mm. quite a wrestle at times. And then at the opposite end, you know, our, our eldest, who's just turned 18 fairly recently, wow. you know, he might well feel, wow, we're still in an interesting phase of life where, you know, I've just turned 18. My youngest birth brother is 12 and suddenly I've still got an eight year old in the house. What what might life have looked like? What might we, we be doing together as a family if these children weren't around? But, but you know, the, the rewards are way greater yeah. than the, the personal cost, I think. Well,
0: let's end on, on a positive thing. What are the great things about adoption?
1: Oh, the great things, I think, you know, spiritually speaking, I mean, this might sound super spiritual, but I really mean it. I think it's helped me really understand what it means for me to be adopted into God's family, you know, the choice that God made for me. So I, I think there's a spiritual side to it relationally, it's been fantastic in that it's extended our family, it's made our family a little bit more dynamic from what it otherwise would have been. There's way more people in the house to argue with each, with each other. So that's good. Everything, you know, <laughs> gets a little bit watered down. And, and aside from that, I think it's just the, the knowledge. And this this might sound like a bit of a selfish thing, but there, there is huge reward in the knowledge that You've intervened and you, you're trying to do your best in a situation to help change the trajectory of a couple of young
0: lives. Yeah. And,
1: you know, there's there's huge value in that. And, you know, it's not the driving motivation, of course, but it is a factor.
0: How difficult is it then as a parent to be able to love the adopted child equally as much as your other child, your birth child?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. Do you know, it's not something we've ever wrestled with. I, I, I guess the wrestle is exactly the same. You know, if you have... And I remember going through this a little bit, you know, when we had our first child, you, you think, well, when the second came along, do I still have more love to share? And I think the reality is, that, you know, there is no limit to the love that's available. We don't find it difficult at all. And we treat them all as equals. And I think we love them all equally.
0: Brilliant. And obviously, in years to come, it, it will pay back to you.
1: Well, you never know. Somebody else to push me around in my wheelchair, isn't it? And pay my residential fees. So,
0: and <laughs> of course, they become world famous, in which case, you know, you can do it somewhere nice and exotic. Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) Let's see if we can work on it. Listen, thank you for sharing that. I think this goes to your book because I can see so many avenues coming off this. And we've already talked about what the word ecclesiology means. But let's go back to the book and why you want to use this great analogy of a restaurant. So us more.
1: I guess I probably ought to try and explain what I mean by restaurant ecclesiology. So this is something I've made up. I was looking for a metaphor, really, to try and describe an exaggerated version of what I experience in my day-to-day life in terms of leading a local church. Uh, So I have the great privilege of leading Christchurch Baptist Church, fantastic church. And I guess, you know, I'm now 20 years into church leadership in several different contexts. And I guess over time what I've noticed is that it's becoming increasingly difficult to try and nurture commitment from folk in the life of your church to the life of your church, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. People are becoming more and more reluctant, it seems, to serve in the way that perhaps they used to, to express the kind of levels of commitment that I guess, you know, historically might have been observed in the life of the church. So I I was kind of wrestling with that and thinking, well, what's a really good metaphor to try and explain this? And I thought, well, it's a little bit like going into a restaurant. I go to my favourite restaurant. I normally go there with a couple of people that I know. I sit down at the table with those couple of people. I, I order from a menu the things that I want to eat. And although I'm aware of, you know, other diners are in the restaurant, because that's kind of part of the experience of a good restaurant, isn't it? Just being aware Mm -hmm. that there's an atmosphere, I guess. Actually, I don't spend a huge amount of time interacting with those other people, if at all. I eat the thing I want to eat, and then I leave. And I guess for as long as I'm happy with the menu, as long as I'm happy with the service that I've received, I stick around. And if I'm not happy, then actually I won't go back to that restaurant. I'll just find another so I guess in the book, I'm trying to suggest, and it, and it is a gross exaggeration, it's a caricature, and I, I'm keen to underline that, especially if people from my own church are listening <laughs> to this. And they've, they've read the book, and no one sacked me yet. But I guess, you know, I was trying to think of a, an appropriate metaphor, and I thought, actually, that is how I treat a restaurant. And in a caricature kind of a way, I think the risk is that's how we can treat the local church yeah. for as long as it's meeting my needs. I will consume the content from there for as long as it's not i i might just leave and go somewhere else so i guess you know that's the customer's experience and then in the book i kind of argue well sometimes as a church leader it can feel a bit like we're the waiting staff or the management of that restaurant and we're busy racing around trying to make sure that everyone's happy and content and everyone's needs are being met and and i guess i'm asking the question is there a better way than what I've defined as being restaurant ecclesiology.
0: Yeah, thank you. I did actually go to another press launch last week, and by the time the person had interviewed the the author, it was like, well, I don't need to buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, in your case, available as a Kindle and also on Amazon. So, we won't talk much more about that, if that's all right, but talk about avenues off it, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Otherwise, you're not going to get the millions of pounds coming in from all the royalties. Yeah, well, that would be a miracle, but anyway, yeah. And let's talk about the tick box exercise that I made mention of it and you have as well. You hate the idea, apparently, this is what I found on uh, on Google, you hate the idea of a local church being a kind of religious tick boxing exercise, quote.
1: Yeah, and, and I think this has been a passion of mine. I mean, one of the reasons why I felt called into local church ministry which was like two decades plus ago was just my desire actually that the local church it's the most wonderful thing when it's working well i just love it it's absolutely brilliant when it's broken it's bad and i you know we probably should say that but actually when it's at its best it's church family and and it's a great environment in order to explore faith to share faith and and I guess I've always been keen in my Christian life not to live the religious life, but actually to live a relationship with Christ and with other people, which is is very real. So, you know, I'd love to think that the local churches I'm involved in in leading actually do have that kind of real relational thing where we are doing real life together. We're not just turning up and ticking a box and saying, yeah, I've done church for this week and I'll probably do it again next week, but I've ticked the box for this week. So I I guess that's kind of what I mean by what I've said there.
0: I want to take it a step further. That's okay. Uh, There was a band, oh, way back in the mid-1990s, and uh, they were called Nuff Said, and they were from Wolverhampton area or Dudley, I think, something like that. And they did a song called Steeplechasing, and the idea of it was, was that they thought that Christians would, if they got fed up with one church, would go to another church and they would go to another steeple. So they were going from one steeple to another, just like a steeplechase race, and of course, yeah. steeple steeplechasing. What do you think of that in relation to what you see in your church? How many people come in these days because they're fed up because the tick box exercise they have, the previous church isn't quite meeting all their strict criteria as to what makes a perfect Christian a perfect church?
1: Yeah, and and, and I think, you know, we've got to be honest, there is some of that. And, you know, we, we kind of live in the Bible bout of the South Coast. So... You know, there's plenty of very, very good churches to choose from, of which I would include our own uh, as well. But there are plenty of churches. And I, I think there is a risk that folk can do that. I mean, I don't think it's something that we as local church leaders try to encourage. But inevitably, you do end up with some of your growth as a local church being what you might call transfer growth, Mm. which essentially is just people moving from one church to the next to the next. I guess it's something we don't encourage because I think, you know, people might be surprised to know that we as church leaders in our local time do actually talk to one another, (laughs) believe it or not. And, you know, are really for one another and are cheering one another on. And our, our great desire is that all of our churches would grow. So we do try and discourage that. I mean, I've got to say my experience at a local church level is the majority of the people who we attract who already have a faith, who are already plugged into a church are actually coming to us because they geographically moved into the area. It's not because they're hopping from one church to the other. I mean, all of that said, local churches are a community and sometimes doing community together is difficult. And I think there can all be all sorts of really good reasons why people can and should transfer between local churches when they hit a particular set of circumstances and you know on occasion at the end of the day the bottom line for me is always are you growing spiritually in the context within which you're in if you're not growing spiritually then maybe that's a really good reason to either do something about that or to consider plugging in with another church where that growth can happen And there have been occasions in the life of my own church here where I've said to people, look, you know, for whatever reason, you seem to be stagnating here. You don't seem to be growing in your faith. Maybe the best thing for you to do is to go to another church set up to see whether or not you, you grow there.
0: Yeah. How many times, though, could you actually say, well, actually, it's got nothing to do with us. It's just that the person concerned is treating Christianity as a one day in the week. Sunday, that's it. And that's the tick box done whereby they're not actually grown because they haven't even bothered to know where their Bible is in the house, let alone open it.
1: Yeah. And and I think, you know, one of the things that the church maybe historically more so than now was really good at was making disciples, disciples who were self-feeding, actually. And maybe this is the risk. You know, in in our day and age, we have got more and more and more resources than anyone in history has had before us in order to feed ourselves with the things of the gospel, with the things of the faith. And yet we're probably, spiritually speaking, the mal- most malnourished people on the planet, despite the fact we've got all this kind of spiritual food available to us. Yeah, I I don't know many people, if I'm really honest, who actually want to live the, the Sunday Christian life, who are only Christians for one day a week. But, but I think there is a reality that some folk really do struggle with working out how to live their faith out on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think that's one of the roles and responsibilities of, of a local church. Actually, it's, you know, my primary call as a church leader, as a church pastor, is to help equip and resource people so that they can be those kind of self-feeding yeah. Christians who are living their Christian faith in every moment of their life because surely God is in, interested in the whole, not just in the
0: part. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting line you said there. You don't know how many people are actually doing that. Let's say that it's consciously doing it, but what about unconsciously doing it, whereby people just go to church and they think that's all there is to it?
1: Yeah, and and I'm sure that probably does happen. And maybe that's half the challenge, actually, is to think about our faith consciously. I think of that scripture verse that speaks about, is it Romans 12 somewhere? I'm making that up now. Yeah, it is. Be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind. Yes. I think there is a need to consciously think about the things of our faith. And actually, when we do consciously think about those things, that transformation in the mind begins but actually then it drops into the heart and then we live that out in our daily lives yeah, yeah i get the sense that the vast majority of people long for that to happen but sometimes don't know how to make that happen in their day-to-day living maybe even subconsciously you know they're, they're just not living out those disciplines but if they can think about them consciously
0: maybe they would yeah no exactly that's half the battle when you start to think about it consciously then you more than halfway there to actually doing something about it
1: but, but i think it's one of the beautiful things actually of recent history i think there's been some great movements and I, I think of some of the stuff that lICC the london institute of contemporary christianity what a mouthful that they've been doing you know they've been talking about front lines and that kind of thing this idea that actually we are christians in our workplace we're called to be a witness and an influence in our workplace and this kind of compartmentalization of life into there are holy bits and there are not holy bits. You know, they've really been chipping away at that, as have others over the years, to say, you know, this is about a journey of whole life discipleship. It's not just a journey of discipleship in the so-called spiritual boxes of our lives, like church or the prayer meeting or the Bible study, but God is interested in the whole.
0: Yeah, And I want to come back to that, if that's okay. But before we do, a great quote I found again on Dr. Google's website. It's attributed to you. Which basically you were saying that is church membership the best idea Baptists have ever had, which I thought was a great line, but <laughs> tell us more, please.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, this kind of goes back to my book. Sorry to talk about it, but yeah, I, I wrestle with the question of well, if restaurant ecclesiology, this idea that we can treat church like a restaurant is true, even if it's a caricature, what's the solution to that? And so, within Baptist church life, you know, we, we love the idea of church membership that. You kind of make a covenant commitment to the local church. And you say, for this season of my journey of faith, I'm going to be a member of this particular church to live out that Christian faith within community. So we, we have church membership. And I guess the thing I've wrestled with over the years is, you know, is church membership really an effective tool for creating commitment in the local church? Are we at risk of it just becoming another one of those box ticking exercises where you can say, yes, yeah. I'm a member of the local church? but it doesn't actually make any difference in your day-to-day real life living. So, yeah, we've wrestled with that a bit, really. And, and, you know, Baptists sometimes get a bit mocked over church membership uh, and, you know, voting and having church members meetings and all those kind of things. So, yeah, I'm wrestling with the question, does church membership still work today or is it just an outdated, outmoded model of church that we should have got rid of several decades ago?
0: And your answer is?
1: And my answer is, I thought you might ask me that. My answer is that actually, I think church membership still does have its place. I think there's a sense in which it's necessary so that you can know who's covenanting with you and who's part of your church community. I think it's really important so that there's some accountability uh, somewhere in the mix of that. I think it's really important so that, and this is particularly important for us with as Baptist churches, that when you're making decisions in the life of the local church, you actually need to know who the people are who have formally said, yeah, I want to be part of this church. But I think more importantly than all of that, it's a way, and it's probably the best of a load of bad options available to us, but it's a way of saying, do you know what, I am committed to the life, life of this local church and I've made this covenant commitment almost, you know, it probably sounds a bit heavy, but it's almost a bit like a marriage vow. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've made this vow to say, yeah, I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to be part of its mission. I'm going to serve within it. I'm going to give within it. I'm going to be praying for this church community. It's my family. And membership is one of the ways that I express that. Okay. So my argument actually is you raise the bar on membership. You don't get
0: rid of it. Oh, very good. And how's it going for you in your church? Oh, really badly. <laughs> I like the answer. <laughs> Why?
1: No, I mean, you know, you write the book. It doesn't mean you've managed to work it out in practice. No, I say it's going really badly. It's not. I I happen to be privileged to be part of an absolutely amazing church community, which is made up of those who are members and those who are not. Yeah. So probably about fifty percent of the folk who are part of our local church here are actually members. The other fifty percent are absolutely welcome and very much part of our church community. They just haven't covenanted to to membership. But of those who are church members, and even those who aren't, to be honest, we have an incredibly committed church. We've got an amazing church family of people who are serving and witnessing and really seeking to grow their faith, but also see others come to faith at the same time. So I can't complain. I am thoroughly blessed with the church family that God has uh, encouraged and asked me to lead.
0: Well, that's good. Mike Yaconelli, unfortunately, died quite a few years ago now, but he was one of the first Christian authors that I really got on well with never met, but you know, I thought he's talking my language, it's brilliant. I think what started it for me was that in his opening gambit he said that he's a he's also a pastor and very proud of the fact that his membership is now reduced to 70 people. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty. I like it. But which leads on then to the fact if we talk about reduction in membership or you're hiring the bar, and in light of what I was saying as well about conscious and unconscious, one of the things I found from previous guests, especially from across the waters, this thing called the Duns movement, which I mentioned before, you know, where they're just done with going to church. <laughs> yes. They haven't lost their faith in Christ, but they're just done with going to church. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that does happen. So I think, I mean, just to qualify, I guess, what I was saying about raising mm. the bar for church membership, I, I think, and I argue this in my book, There's there's some kind of psychological, sociological study within there, which... Would argue that actually people really are looking for something to give themselves to. They're looking for something which is worth saying, yes, I want to be a member of this. And part of that is about how is my membership of this organization going to meet my needs? But I think there's something bigger than that as well. I think people are also looking to say, look, where can I make a valuable contribution? Where can I? leave something of a legacy in life where can I do something that really is going to make a difference in this world and I think you know most most people that you encounter Christian or not that's kind of their desire that they just want to offer something of value and something of worth yeah so I guess my argument about raising the bar on church membership is actually about saying let's not water down our expectations of of what we expect of people when they're members but actually let's increase the expectation and I think by doing so People feel a greater sense of commitment and people therefore feel that their contribution is all the more valuable, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Are are there people that are done with church? Yeah, I I think there are. But I think sometimes that's because we as churches are starting to get this wrong. I I think we as churches can expect far too much of people. We church leaders sometimes need to remind ourselves that, you know, although for many of us this is our full-time job, it's it's not the full-time job for everybody else. And, you know, I, I guess that's one of the things I'm I'm a little bit aware of with my book is it you can read the book and it can sound a bit like a beat up of anyone under the age of 50. Yeah. It's not supposed to be that. It's just talking in kind of in big picture terms about, you know, the experience that I've had. Or
0: as you called it, pre-saga and post-saga, which I thought was good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so this idea that, you know, well, as soon as you're 50, you can join saga and you can go on saga holidays, and <laughs> which I'm strangely not far away from, actually. But yeah, I I think sometimes people have a sense that they're done with church because actually church is not meeting their needs necessarily in the way that they need them to be met, but nor are they able to use their gifts and serve in the way that they would like to, mm. so that they can feel they're making a valuable contribution. At the very end of my book, just to give away the last chapter, I call for a different model. And actually the model is about being family together. It's this idea that Instead of gathering around a restaurant table, we actually gather around a family table and we say, look, you know, we're all at different ages and stages, but actually each one of us around this table has got a contribution to make to the family. Mm. Take our household for a moment. You know, our, our eight-year-old might sit there and make some fairly eight-year-old contribution to our family. That contribution is no less valid to the contribution our 18-year-old might make or our, my, my wife might make, for example. Yeah everyone is valid around that table and and can offer as their stage and age allows.
0: That's very interesting because, oh, several years ago now in a a former Christian ministry life for me, a really good friend, as he turned out, and he was like in his 60s then when I was struggling in my 40s, and he would tell me how much he loved living in France. He said, because in France they have this thing, especially even in a village, where the older you get, the more important that person becomes. And I think that happens throughout uh, the Far East as well where there's some sort of protocol whereby the older you are, we're going to use you because you are very wise and yeah. so forth. Seems to have lost it, I think, in church these years. What do you think? Yeah,
1: I think so. And I think in our Western world, in our UK context, as we're talking about here, I think the opposite happens. I, I think, you know, we we can value the younger person and actually the older person can end up becoming quite silent. Yeah, I've heard it said through the lips of older people, you know, I've become invisible. And, and that's concerning, yeah. isn't it? Because, you know, again... The reality is the younger person and the older person has something really helpful to offer. I, I remember once going to a conference and listening to a, a big name speaker say, you know, I, I don't let anyone over, over the age of 25 on my stage. Why would I do that? You know, I'm trying to paint an image of the church being cool and hip and happening. So if you're over 25, why would I let you on the stage? The exception, of course, was that church leader who was, you know, in their 50s, they were allowed to get up and preach, but nobody else over the age of 25 was this
0: is where I cough and go hypocrite
1: <coughs> <laughs> but I guess you know that's the challenge isn't it if our, if the organization of our church becomes about corporatization and branding yeah more than it is about relating to one another in a meaningful way, then those kind of things consciously or subconsciously can start happening and the voice of for argument's sake in this case a younger person be- can become much louder and the voice of an older person actually can become quite silenced.
0: What was also you said, was that, you know, this is like the Bible Belt of South Coast. Never heard that in all my years. Never heard that before. So what's going on on the South Coast that I'm missing out on?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The reality is on the South Coast, there is some fantastic stuff happening in local churches. And, you know, God is growing his church. And I I think there's plenty of good reasons to really celebrate and to rejoice. And, and that growth is happening in all sorts of different ways in different places. So, you know, you have got the, the churches that are growing with loads and loads of younger people. You've got very vibrant student churches in the area. There are also um, smaller expressions of church as well that are seeing growth, which is kind of proportionate to their size as well. So I think there are loads of real encouragements. I, I think for me, the greatest encouragement is that we see growth in in our particular church context across the age groups. And, you know, for me, that's really precious. I, I, I love the ideal, though I think it's very, very difficult to do, of genuinely being a cross-generational, intergenerational church. Mm. You know, sometimes that can be hard work. Sometimes you think it would be much easier if, you know, we could just, I don't know, get rid of all the hymns or get rid of all the, the contemporary songs and just focus on one genre and do that really well. Maybe that would be easier, but I think the risk of doing that is you lose something really rich about that cross generational thing together. Uh, so there is something vibrant happening in the here and now. I think there's also an historic legacy. Why are there so many churches in this area? Because actually, you know, historically, the church has been vibrant and it's been growing throughout its history but there are plenty of new churches around as well. So there's much to much to celebrate.
0: So what about then, in light of the fact that Minister Bloke was saying, you know, I don't have anyone over 25 coming on the stage, what about you doing like two church services in the morning, assuming that you had the strength to do it, whereas it's, one's pre-saga and the other one is post-saga?
1: Yeah, well, I, and, and I think some churches are doing that. I, I mean, we, in our own local context here, and this, this is as much to do about the size of the buildings that we have available, we do run two services. At the moment, we've got the human resource to run our youth and children's ministry at one of the services and not the other. The inevitable outcome of that, I guess, is that your families and children tend to come to one service and not the other. You know, some people would argue, well, you're already doing that. You're kind of offering one service which is going to attract children and families uh, and another that is likely to attract perhaps People who don't necessarily fit into that category, who, you know, particularly being in Christchurch, because the other reputation as well as being having incredibly expensive houses is that we've also got very focal windows on the shops and all that kind of thing, because there's so many older people around. The truth is, actually, we have people in all age categories. And the lovely thing for us is that we do see across the course of our two services, Mm. the generations are mixing despite the fact we're running these two expressions of church, you know our little strap line here is we've we've got two services, but we are still one church. And you know we make a point several times a year. Of coming together and doing gathered church together in one location off site because it's the only way we can make it happen where we are joining together our two services as that one church um, expression.
0: Yeah, yeah. You've also got uh, messy church and things like that.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think you know all that you've just shared underlines the fact that the gospel is good news, and I think you know one of the challenges for us is to find creative ways of expressing that good news to the different groups of people, just people, actually, the people that there are around us. And I I think, you know, as a a local church leader here in Christchurch, one of the things I celebrate is that our church demographic is broadly represented of the demographic of our town. And that really thrills me because it probably suggests that we're being reasonably effective at reaching all the different age groups, not just one or the other.
0: Two-part question coming up, sir. So that's all right. What do you mean by having a relationship with God and not a religious one?
1: You know, sometimes people, it's become a bit of a cliche, haven't they? They'll say things like, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person. I have a relationship with Jesus. And I I, I think there's something really significant in that sentence. I, I guess it goes back a little bit to the question you asked earlier about box ticking. Mm. Being religious is ticking boxes. Having a relationship with God is something altogether more intimate and much more meaningful. And and for me as a church leader, for me personally, I'm committed to pursuing a relationship with God. I'm not committed to pursuing religiosity or religious box-ticking exercises.
0: See, so you've just actually melded both answers into one there because I was going to say what well, oh, was, which is
1: good. Yeah, that's good. If I can avoid the second question, that can only be a good thing. Wait, do you know what the second question was going to be? Yeah, go on.
0: What's your definition of a religious one?
1: Uh, well, hopefully, I've kind of just covered it, and I, I, I think yeah, you have. People know the difference, don't they? I, I think one of the things that, again, is so beautiful about church community, and you, as you've probably picked up by now, I'm quite passionate about local church. Yeah, you are. And maybe I should be as a local church leader. But I think one of the comments that people make fairly often when they come and join us as a church community is wow, I just love that kind of relational thing. And I I, I talk about it being cruciform. So this idea that there's kind of a, a vertical relationship, the one between us and God. I think people have a sense of, yeah, that feels really live and vibrant when we're part of your church community. But then also there's the horizontal part of that relationship as well, which is the relationship with one another. We're really real, just Mm. doing real life together, sharing life together. And it's one of the comments that people make. And, you know, I guess that makes doing church life a real joy as well, sometimes as being quite challenging. Because if we just turned up, we ticked the religious boxes and we went home and we didn't interact with one another, half the interrelational challenges that you occasionally get in a family simply wouldn't happen. Maybe that would make life easier.
0: It might do, I do. But why are you passionate then about seeing people become Christians? What's, What's this passion that you've got? Where does it come from?
1: Well, I I think for me, I I, I became a Christian. I like to say I've become a Christian hundreds of times, actually. But (laughs) I I suppose when I wind the clock back, when I think about that time I first made a commitment to to Jesus, I, I just realized that actually the gospel was good news. That as I wrestled with my own life and realized some of the faults and the failings, I guess you could call it sin, that was in my own life, I realized in my own human strength I couldn't deal with it. And that I did actually need a God, a savior, who could actually deal with my sin and put me back in right relationship with God? And I guess because I've come to know that and understand that, I'm just really keen that others come to know and understand that as well. So, so I guess part one answer to your question is, I'm just really pleased to have discovered the gospel and I want others to know it. I think the other thing for me is why am I passionate about local church is that actually, as I was growing up, I went to a church, not because my family went there, but because I was part of a Boys Brigade group. And if you know anything about Boys Brigade, they've kind of got faith weaved into their very foundations. Uh, And I sometimes say I was blackmailed into into the kingdom of God. So in order to play football on Saturday, I had to have gone to church the Sunday before. So I went to the church up the road from me. And what I discovered when I went to that church was a community who loved each other and it was really good fun to be part of. Now, I know that's not everyone's life experience. You know, some people have been to churches and it's been a negative experience. And I think that's really sad. But for me growing up, it was such a positive experience. And as a consequence, I guess, as I've become a church leader, I think, wouldn't it be great to give other people the kind of experience I had as I was growing up, where I just loved being part of this community so I'm kind of grateful to Boys Brigade for blackmailing me so that I'd end up going to a church where ultimately I heard about this gospel as well the two together the gospel and the church when it's working well together are just two beautiful things maybe even one and the same thing.
0: Yeah. Well, in my case, it wasn't football that drew me to a certain church, but because I fancied a girl that went there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the a little bit of my story is I did actually meet my now wife by going to that church as well. Yeah. So, you, you know, there, there might have been another motive as well.
0: Well, tell me more of your thoughts then on the kind of lifestyle that Christ would want us to live and have.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I, I suppose I preach this every Sunday. Do you kind of want my latest sermon? Yeah. I think what Jesus modelled was fantastic. You know, it's somebody who seemed to me to be able to do real life, seemed to be able to relate to other people, seemed to have a connection with God and did it in such an inspiring way. You know, I guess the really short answer to the question is Jesus would love for us to be more like him. You know, he's, he's got the advantage, I suppose, of being the perfect son of God and having lived the sin-free life. But I guess the kind of Christian life that I think he'd love for us to live is the kind of Christian life where we have an in- intimate connection with his father through him, and a life which is empowered by the gift of his Spirit—you know, this incredible resource that lives within us—that actually can bring change and transformation into our lives to help us live a life that is more Christ-like. Did that even answer the question you asked? I have no idea. Not really, but it
0: was—it was good. Well, sort of, yes, yeah, sort of, indeed. But let's develop it. That's right. In the remaining few minutes that we've got. Because I'm obviously very concerned for the people that would proclaim a few years ago to be Christians, yeah. but now just for whatever reason, being backstabbed or whatever, have just given up. With your passion that you've got for us to live the life that Christ was like us to live, what would you say to these people that are just on the verge of giving up going to church because it's, it's not worth it?
1: I don't even know if it's my place to do it, but I guess the first thing I'd want to do is actually make an apology for times when people have experienced church to be anything less than life bringing. Now, you know, maybe I'm not in a place to offer that apology for somebody who's had that difficult experience in a context other than our own. But Mm. I guess I do feel that burden of responsibility as a leader. Churches are not perfect. There was a church local to us here who some years back used to have a strap line that said something like, the church where the imperfect are perfectly welcome. And I just think that's a brilliant strap line. The church where the imperfect are perfectly welcome just reminds us of the fact that actually our churches are full of imperfect people trying to explore life and faith and understand what it means to to live this earthly life. And we do it imperfectly. And tragically, that does sometimes mean that church is less than perfect. So I I guess I would offer an apology. I, I guess the flip side of the same coin as well is to say to some of these folk, try again. You know, because of your bad experience in one context, it doesn't mean that that necessarily is going to be replicated in any other and I would encourage people to continue to explore the things of faith, even if they have been hurt and they found things to be really difficult. But, you know, when church works well, it's fantastic uh, and it's brilliant.
0: Peter Meadows is the gentleman concerned who I interviewed last week on his podcast. He was a gentleman who actually gave more or less the same answers you gave at the front end. And the reason I'm saying this is that he said a line that's been going around my brain cells ever since. You and I would have heard this. Friday's here, but Sunday is coming. Yeah. So as if we're supposed to get all really excited about Sunday. And he turned it around by saying there was a better line that he heard from somebody else, which was Sunday is here, but Monday is coming. Yes. You laughed. Why?
1: Yeah, well, I I think that's brilliant. And and in a way, I mean, just to join up the dots back to when I was talking about the work that LICC are doing around front lines is, you know, it's this idea that actually Sunday is not necessarily the headline and the highlight of the week, actually. It's one day... Well, yeah, you know, in most of our contexts and it's not true of every church, we come together and we gather and we have this kind of great celebration. But actually, it's really about a preparation, if you like, for the sending out that's going to happen. We gather so that we can scatter. And actually, our scattered life, arguably, is much more important than our gathered life, if that makes sense. So I, I think, you know, our gathered community life is really about uh, on a Sunday, is preparation for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, until we gather again and then we we scatter again. So, you, you know, Peter, clearly very wise individual.
0: Oh, he is. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't heard the podcast yet, please have a listen, because he's like one of the two people I think that uh, the UK need to doff the cap to with regard to Christian media that we have today. And he's uh, one of the two. But then, you see, I suppose what we could say as well is, it's all very well me saying, well, let's go on about the Dunce movement and you apologising for them. But actually, we could be held responsible as well. First of all, we could be part of the dance. So, what we actually trying to do with it to dig ourselves out? But also, on the other part, you know, if we go to church, you know, we should be realising that actually our actions through Monday onwards could have a terrible negative effect on these people that are in the process of walking out.
1: Yeah, and no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And isn't that therefore the challenge to to live? The most Christ-like life that we can possibly live. I I think there was something so attractive about Jesus and the way that he lives. The the challenge for us is we do that imperfectly. You know, we are broken human beings. You know, one definition of sin is that it's got I in the middle because you know we are inherently selfish. We're I-centered, if you like. Yeah, very good. And I think you know there's some truth to that, but you know, one definition of Christianity is actually to live differently. And I, I think that is the challenge. We've got to live the life that is different uh, and that life that we live that is different. If if what Jesus said is true, that he will give us life and it will be an abundant life, then it ought to be making a difference in the ways that we live, in the way that we interact with others. I, I think one of the troubles is you, we take two steps forward, one step back so yeah. often, don't we, in all sorts of things in life. And I think you know, that can be true of our Christian lives. You know, it's very much a journey. Discipleship doesn't happen in a moment. It happens over a lifetime. Maybe we need to be more gentle with ourselves sometimes and, and realize that we are on a journey. We're not the people who we one day will be. But equally, we're not the people who we once were if we really do commit to this whole kind of discipleship journey.
0: But maybe then what I'm about to say sums it all up. What you've been saying and what your book is saying is that if we are to be like Christ, all of a sudden, people say, oh, yes, let's see what Christ actually says on this. And they start making up rules. And then it then becomes a tick box exercise because you're going to say, oh, yes, well, in that case, then divorce. Well, that's important. And then oh, what about women talking in, in church, let alone being a pastor? That's important. And we start going through all these sorts of things. So my last question to you before I find out who a Christian hero is, how important is it? to get answers to those kind of questions? Uh,
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, I think theologically uh, all of the time, which I guess, you know, it's a slightly dangerous thing to say. It all sounds a bit highbrow, really, doesn't it? But the reality is I'm trying to think biblically, theologically, holistically about the whole of my life. And I think the risk when we just end up coming up with a whole list of laws or rules that we say, well, I can attach a Bible verse to this, is actually we might not be dealing with a Bible with absolute integrity. We might not be doing a proper hermeneutic on it, to chuck in another long word.
0: I thought that was a sweetener, that you put in your coffee. I think most people wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean, actually?
1: So it's about understanding, interpreting the Bible within the context within which it was written.
0: Alright, okay. You know,
1: there, there are so many things in our Christian thinking that actually we say, well, the Bible clearly says X, Y, and Z, yeah, yeah. and actually if we do a bit more hard work about the text that we're actually reading, and we read it within its context, and we read, read it a much wider understanding, we suddenly realize the Bible maybe does not clearly say necessarily the thing that we think it has said. I think the whole journey of faith is an understanding of Scripture is quite a wrestle, really. You know, there's a call in Scripture that we would worship in spirit and in truth. And I think there's, you know, there's kind of two parts to that. And I think Jesus held that in perfect tension. He knew the capital T truth. He knew it. But also he lived a life that was led by the spirit, which, you know, lots of ways of looking at that. But I think one of the things that means for me is Jesus knew how it was to relate to other people. So you use the example, you know, of the woman at the well, for example. Mm. He spoke the truth to her, but also he was incredibly loving towards her at the same time. And somehow Jesus is able to hold that in perfect tension in a way that, you know, I as a broken human being sometimes struggle to do.
0: This hermeneutics word is great because this week I talked to someone and he'd never been married before, but married a divorcee. And then yesterday I met someone I've never met before and we started talking. Turned out he was a Christian and he said he was a divorced person. And I said, oh, OK, fine. He said, yes, but I will never remarry. And I was going, why not? He said, because it's very clear in the Bible, this such and such. Yeah. If those two people were in the room right now and you walked in, what would you say to them?
1: Well, I'd probably turn around and quickly leave and go and find another coffee shop. I think it's probably <laughs> the answer. I think what I would do is I would encourage them to share their different perspectives. It's in Ephesians somewhere. I think it, let's say it's in Ephesians chapter four, because that then makes me sound quite clever. It's in three or four, it, it talks about the manifold wisdom of God. And there are lots of ways of interpreting that, that phrase manifold wisdom. I and mean, one of them is to say it's the, the variegated or the multifaceted wisdom of God. And, and I think sometimes on some of these, these things that we debate within Christian circles where, you know, different churches or different Christians might have a polarizing view. They have those views because the Bible does not clearly say something on that subject. God in his variegated, manifold, multifaceted wisdom has allowed there to be some ambiguity. Now, you know, I can already sense, you know, some people lining up to throw stones at me for saying something like that, that, you know, the Bible doesn't clearly say.
0: Because they'll turn around and say, it does. It clearly states. You can't argue. Yeah, and
1: that that might well be true. and, And it might well be that the person has landed in that place thinkingly and having done the hard work of wrestling theologically with, particular issue that's at hand. I I guess the risk, and you you know, we've probably all met people like this, there are people who say the Bible clearly says, but actually when you push them on the subject, you realize they've never even thought about it. What they've done is grabbed hold of one particular theological perspective, and they've never met somebody else who holds a different perspective and actually genuinely had a dialogue. So going back to your two people in the same room, I walk in, I would try, I think, and facilitate a conversation so that they can hear each other's perspectives, so that they can listen to the other person. Because I think so often it's when we, we listen and we wrestle that we understand new insights that probably we hadn't heard before. There's an old cardinal who once said, with every human being I meet, I meet somebody who can teach me something about God that no other human being could teach me because that individual was made in the image of God. And I really love that idea that, you know, by our conversation today, Martin, I've discovered something about God through you. I would never otherwise have discovered. What an amazing
0: thought. I think it'd be called a miracle if that did actually happen. (laughs) People in my past life say, you've no idea, Martin. Do you know what? I just want to carry on this conversation a bit more if that's okay, because two people from polarizing opposites coming together doesn't have to be about divorce. It could be about anything. You, as a minister, want to suddenly bring in this H word, hermeneutics. I can't say it properly. I want to say hermeneutics instead. Hermeneutics. That's the word. Why don't we do that more often?
1: Yeah, I think because it's really difficult, actually, and and I think because there are theologians who have been studying theology for years and years and years who engage in these kind of disciplines. And sometimes they can be really difficult to read and really difficult to understand. These are, you know, big, heavy things. But I think that's the key issue, actually, when it comes to wrestling with theological things full stop. We don't have to do it in a vacuum. We don't have to think, well, there's no other resources I can call upon. And I think, you know, for me, one of the greatest disciplines I have is to read authors who I do not necessarily agree with. And that's not because, you know, I think I should kind of suddenly swing to their particular perspective on something. But actually, unless I'm reading uh, views that I don't agree with, I'm never going to be stretched and challenged in the, the view that I hold. You know, sometimes I think in our church circles and perhaps, you know, the evangelical church, however we describe that phrase of which I'm a part today, sometimes it's not been permissible. There's not been a permission giving culture of asking questions. And, and certainly sometimes, even if people are allowed to ask the questions, they're not allowed to challenge the answers that they've been given. And I guess for me in my local church context, it's one of the things I'm really proud of that actually, you know, we have charismatics and cessationalists, you know, those who are yeah. super believe in the work of the Holy spirit and those who don't believe in the work of the Holy spirit at all today, coexisting in the church family. And there's a bond of unity that holds us together, despite the fact that theologically we might think slightly different things to one another. One, one of the things I say to people every now and again is have your theological view and your theological conviction. That's brilliant. Hold it, but make sure you're holding it with bold humility. Be bold about the things that you believe if you have thought about them and you've really wrestled with them. But hold them with enough humility to say, "Do you know what, I might not be. right on this and there might just be something more I can learn and as you hold those views be compassionate to the person who might hold a view that's different to yours and somehow for me that that all feels you know going back to the Christ-like thing all that feels a little bit Christ-like to me bold humility and a compassionate response to the other person end of sermon
0: (laughs) bold humility but if God is not knowing God, why didn't he just make the Bible so watertight we can't argue on it?
1: Yeah, why didn't he? It's a great question. And, you know, maybe that will be my next book. I, I don't know is the answer, Martin, but but I do know that God is sovereign. I do know that God is in control. I do know that God knows what he's doing. And actually, that gives me a certain amount of peace that as we wrestle with these things, and there are many big things that we wrestle with with our christian faith as it kind of goes head to head and as it sits alongside culture there are lots of things that we wrestle with god in his multifaceted variegated wisdom has allowed there to be ambiguity on some things and you know just maybe just maybe it's not an excuse to be lazy but just maybe sometimes we need to rest in the mystery of that and just be happy to be in that place
0: been great one final question who is your christian hero please chris a guy called Richard Palmer.
1: He was minister of a a local church where I was growing up. And when I went off to Bible college, I, I did my first year student placement alongside Richard. He has sadly now passed away. He became quite ill in the early days of retirement, but I was really inspired by his ministry. He was a great preacher, teacher, fantastic pastor led a church near to where we were that, you know, was everything that I longed that church would be about being relational and somehow having this amazing connection with God at the same time. And a guy that inspired me. And I and I think for me he was a really significant part of my journey into Baptist ministry as he was leader of this particular Baptist church at the time. Married to a fantastic lady called Linda, various children in the life of the church as well. One of the things that really stands out for me with Richard actually was his preaching. I, I remember one uh, for a very long period of time he preached on the book of Nehemiah and told the story of Nehemiah's incredible leadership, probably gleaned by now. I'm kind of quite passionate about local church and local church leadership. So, you know, hearing a series on leadership for me was just really life-bringing. But he was a man who was really, really passionate about anchoring himself in God's word and making sure that his preaching was very Bible-centric. And that's really inspired me. Real privilege as well to attend his funeral. Just hear so many people Expressing his funeral exactly all that stuff I've just articulated, which was also my felt experience about him. We go back again to what does it mean to look Christ like? I would suggest that Richard Palmer was somebody who was Christ like in the way he lived out his Christian faith.
0: Bold humility. Chris Brockway, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real privilege. I know I say that all the time, but it is because this is how I learn in my faith by just listening and talking a load of gibberish. And it's amazing what comes back. So, Chris, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you again, if that's all
1: right. Awesome. God bless you. Thanks, Martin.